0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. It's great to see you all here today. Um, I'm going to just read our CME code for those of you who are listening remotely. So the code today is T-Y-H-E. T-Y-H-E. Go ahead and enter that in. And then I'm going to welcome Dr. Brooke Judd, Assistant Professor of Medicine and the Section Chief of Sleep Medicine uh, to introduce today's speaker. Uh, good morning. Um, I just wanted to actually take a couple minutes before we get started with Dr. Chan um, to introduce ourselves uh, to the Department of Medicine and why we picked this topic. So um, we are, Sleep Medicine is a relative newcomer to the Department of Medicine, although we've actually been around for a long time. Um, And the sleep center here is actually the third oldest sleep center in the country. It was started in psychiatry in 1971 um, with the arrival of Dr. Peter Howery. So now when you think about sleep medicine, um, people think more about sleep apnea and CPAP, but um, in 1971, sleep apnea wasn't really on the radar and CPAP hadn't been invented yet. And Dr. Howery was actually really interested in the physiological processes of sleep. Um, He became a pioneer in the field of insomnia and he really um, studied and defined most of the behavioral underpinnings of the um, development and management, behavioral management of chronic insomnia, um, many of which I'm sure Dr. Chan will be uh, talking about today. Um, So, the section really started more on the basis of, kind of sleep physiology and insomnia. Um, insomnia is an incredibly um, common and frustrating problem that I think yeah. that affects a lot of people. Um, it tends to be insidious. It gets pushed to the side because there may be more acute medical issues or psychiatric issues that are being evaluated and managed. But... Um, it can have significant long-term impacts. It has significant effects on quality of life. Um, it can affect societal productivity. And and also, it really is associated, and you'll probably talk about this, but probably associated, it's associated with increased risk of psychiatric disorders, development of uh, psychiatric disorders. So, you know, for these reasons, we thought that this would be a good topic for our first uh, crack at Grand Rounds. And with that, I would like to introduce Dr. Chan. Now I do have to read. Um, so uh, Dr. YZ Chan is uh, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry uh, here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and Geisel joining here last year. She graduated from the clinical psychology program at Indiana University in 2015 and completed a postdoctoral fellowship specializing in behavioral sleep medicine at the University of Missouri. Uh, Dr. Chan is actively involved in the Society of Behavioral Medicine as a member of the Scientific Advisory Committee. Dr. Chan specializes in treating insomnia. She also conducts research in the areas of sleep and obesity. She's interested in using sleep interventions to enhance weight loss outcomes and weight loss maintenance. In addition, she is conducting research in insomnia insomnia treatment for cancer patients. So, Dr. Chan.
1: Thanks for the introduction and also a little bit on the history of the sleep medicine, Uh, because I came on board pretty recently, so I don't think I actually knew (laughs) the history that you just said. Um, So, let's go back to the first slide. Um, Okay, so um, here are the objectives today. I'll talk a little bit about the research. uh, for you know, in, insomnia treatments, especially CBTI, um, so that leaving this presentation, you would know better the scientific basis of CBT, uh, CBTI. I'll talk a little bit more about you know, what is really you know, CBTI, what are the clinical strategies we use, so that um, you would know better and be able to explain to your patients what CBTI is. Um, and leaving this pre- presentation, you uh, would also be able to identify patients who would benefit from um, CBTI, and make a referral for CBTI services. Um, So first of all, um, insomnia is defined by uh, the difficulty of um, initiating sleep or maintaining sleep um, or just waking up too early consistently. Um, It has to be present for at least three times a week to be considered an insomnia symptom. Um, And it has to occur despite having the opportunity to sleep or the circumstance to sleep. Um, so often when I do a presentation in insomnia, a lot of people you know, come to me and say, I think I have insomnia. So uh, if you don't, you don't sleep well or you sleep very little because you are a medical student or a resident, uh, that's not insomnia. It's just, <laughs> it's just life. So, um, And it has to be associated with daytime impairments and distress. So often, if a patient complains about their sleep, that's you know a significant um, clinical level of distress, and it can occur independently or it can be uh, you know uh, caused by another illness. Um, so prior to DSM-5, um, there was a distinction between primary insomnia and secondary insomnia, and they removed the distinction in DSM-5 because um, you know what we see often is that even when insomnia is caused By um, an illness initially. If it lasts long enough, it often runs its own course, meaning that even when the illness is treated, uh, Mm -hmm. people often have persistent insomnia. So, right now, we basically treat primary and secondary insomnia uh, the same way. Um, So, if insomnia sometimes lasts for more than three months, it's considered chronic insomnia. If it's less than three months, it's considered you know yeah. acute short-term insomnia. Some uh-huh. patients have uh, sort of a recurrent pattern of sleep wake difficulties lasting several weeks at a time, uh, but not really meeting the three months criteria, but it seems to be a long-term problem. It could also be diagnosed as chronic insomnia because they have very persistent uh, sleep and wake difficulties. And there are patients who have been using hypnotic medications or other sleep medications for a very long time so that currently they might not have any symptoms falling asleep or maintaining sleep, but there's a clear... (coughs) record that if they don't take the medications, they won't be able to sleep, Uh, then they could be diagnosed with insomnia as well. So insomnia is the most prevalent um, sleep disorder. Um, About 10% of people in the general population has uh, meet criteria for insomnia disorder, Short-term insomnia is is even higher, 30 to 35 percent. Patients presented at primary care clinics often have a little bit elevated rates, uh, 20 percent, and it's often elevated in older adults, um, in veterans, patients with medical and psychiatric illnesses, um, you know, such as chronic pain, um, obesity, anxiety disorders, and mood disorders. So, why do we care about insomnia? So insomnia is estimated to cost $3 billion to $14 billion each year on just for direct treatment costs. Um, and indirect costs, uh, such as lost work productivity, is estimate, estimated to cost about $80 billion. Um, people with insomnia often experience fatigue, poor cognitive functioning, uh, mood disturbances, and other interference with their functioning. And often it's, uh, in some studies, it's been found to be a stronger predictor of suicidality uh, than depression and and, um, depressed mood and hopelessness. Insomnia and anxiety are the strongest predictor of initiation of uh, the use of benzodiazepines and long-term abuse of benzodiazepines. So there are three categories of treatment for insomnia. One is psychological treatments, which is often CBTI, which we will talk a lot about today. Uh, some people do more briever just behavioral part of the treatment, um, which has been shown to be, you know, pretty effective as well. Um, another category, which is actually still the most commonly used treatment is uh, pharmacological treatments. Um, often is, uh, you know, either Benzels or non-Benzels hypnotics uh, or off-label use of uh, antidepressants, antihistamines. More recently, theres some evidence showing that, uh, you know, some alternative approaches uh, might be helpful, such as acupuncture, Chinese medicine, uh, but there's not quite enough evidence to say that it's um, considered evidence-based at this point. So according to the most recent uh, clinical guideline from the American um, College of Physicians, uh, they recommend that all adult patients receiving CBDI, ask the initial treatment for a chronic insomnia disorder. And it's considered a strong recommendation based on uh, moderate quality of um, evidence. And this is based on a, a comprehensive meta-analysis of 60 um, randomized control trials. Um, then the second recommendation they have is that uh, clinicians uh, should use a shared decision-making approach, including a discussion of the benefits harms and costs of short-term use of medications to decide whether to add pharmacological therapy um, in adults who have chronic insomnia and CBTI alone isn't helpful. So CBTI is recommended to be used first before considerations of medications. And often medications uh, have only been shown to be effective for the short term. Um, and here's a hallmark study by Charles Morin's group who um, in a, in, in a Canadian population, comparing um, the effectiveness of CBTI and ph- pharmacotherapy. Um, I think this <coughs> one, they use Benzo for the pharmacotherapy, and they found that CBTI alone actually works the best um, over time. Uh, you know, even more effective than if you were to add medicine, medications to it. In a more recent study done by the same group in 2009, so you might not be able to see it very clearly, but um, so they did something differently. So they try to compare CBTI alone. If you um, look at, oops, I'm trying to use the light. <laughs> um, okay, so
0: let's
1: we'll do it again. Okay, so I gave up on that. Um So CBTI alone, uh, comparing to CBTI plus Ambien, but they look at uh, comparing discontinuing uh, Ambien versus continuing Ambien after the first six weeks. And what they found is if you add Ambien in the acute phase of treatment together with CBTI, it seems to achieve a bigger effect only if you discontinue it after uh, you know, the short-term period. If you continue to use ambient for the long term, it seems to, it, uh, to be associated with, um, you know, not as uh, favorable outcomes. Um, so there are not a whole lot of studies really comparing uh, med- medications and CBTI, but based on the most comprehensive <laughs> review, um, they still find that um, CBTI is superior uh, compared to, you know, either benzoil or non-benzoil uh, medications in the long run. And even though we know that CBTI works the best for insomnia, and it was recommended as the first treatment, there still continue very high rates of use of, um, you know, benzos or non benzo hypnotics for insomnia. And it's, you know, caused by a number of factors. And, um, a lot of it, you know, could be due to knowledge, um, uh, such as you know familiarity with CBTI. Like clinicians, are they familiar with CBTI? Do they understand the effectiveness of it? Um, and also, how to sell CBTI to patients. And so today, we'll spend some time talking about, you know, what CBTI is and how you can sell it to your patients, because often patients. Uh, preference is a key factor in whether they, they would you know, accept a referral or they go see a CBTI provider. And often, for a lot of cases, access to CBTI providers is a key factor. Not a whole lot of people are uh, really trained in doing CBTI, um, especially in sort of a more rural area. And another good thing about CBTI is that it's effective for treating insomnia in patients who have been using hypnotics for a long time. And um, you know, often, more recently, I get you know, some referrals, uh, patients who have been using Ambien or other medications for a very long time, for 20 years. And it's really hard to tell them, you know, just you know, start tapering off or you know, discontinue it. Uh, but CBDI has been shown to be effective to help people in this process of discontinuing their medications. It works uh, as well as, uh, you know, works for people who don't have uh, long-term use of hypnotics or medications. Uh, and in fact, this continuation of medication seems to have, um, you know, lead to additional improvement in, in their sleep uh, outcomes. So what is CBTI? Um, so CBTI is um, often delivered in about four to eight sessions. Uh, there's some research showing that, so some people try to do shorter version, like two sessions, just focusing on the behavioral, but it seems like four sessions seems to be sort of a, the best, um, you know, has to be at least four sessions to have a better outcomes. Um, it's very structured and very skill-based, um, so every session the patient will learn something new, And also the key is that it's uh, very individually tailored. Um, About 70 to 80% of patients experience uh, clinically significant reduction (laughs) of sleep difficulty. And the largest effects are often on uh, the sleep onset latency, referring to the amount of time it takes for them to fall asleep. A wake-after-sleep onset, referring to um, the total duration that they are awake in the middle of the night. And also the sleep efficiency. So sleep efficiency refers to the percentage of time that you're actually sleeping when you're in bed. And that often is the initial target of of CBTI. Um, Sometimes patients coming in, they often say, you know, I need to sleep more but often what I tell them is there's no direct way for me to increase your sleep duration, except if you get some sedatives. Uh, but CBTI really works uh, in you know, helping people kind of retrain their body to be uh, you know, efficient in sleeping so that when they get to bed, they can you know, hit the pill, they fall asleep, and they stay asleep most of the night. And once they become efficient, then um, you know we can slowly expand the sleep window to increase sleep duration if that's what's needed. Um, one interesting thing about CBTI is that, and also a good thing is that, not only does uh, the treatment, effect maintain over time, but it seems to get bigger over time, uh, especially on sleep duration. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more why that might be the case. And a very important, well, yeah, so it has modest effect in sleep duration as post-treatment, but often the effect on sleep duration is even bigger at follow-up. Um, CPTI is not just about sleep hygiene, so I think that's very important because a lot of people heard of sleep hygiene or you know, patients, if they have years of insomnia, they probably looked online and you know read all those about sleep hygiene, and they always say, you know, I try everything, it doesn't work. Um, so CPTI isn't just about sleep hygiene. <coughs> So CBDI is based on um, the behavioral model of insomnia, developed by uh, Spillman in the 1980s. So in this model, insomnia is um, uh, developed in a progression uh, as a result of a combination of uh, what we call predisposing factors, precipitating factors, and perpetuating factors. So often predisposing factors are things like you know, genetics or you know, just more general high anxiety sensitivity or people who have a past um, you know, history of shift work seem to have a greater chance of developing insomnia in the future. And having predisposing factors don't necessarily lead to insomnia until they sort of experience a precipitating event that trigger some acute sleep disturbances such as Uh, Increased stress, uh, change of environment, life transitions, or illnesses. Um, A pretty common thing I see in my patients is, especially in older adults, is that they start to have insomnia once they retire. And it's often because, you know, they feel so excited about retiring that I never need to wake up. Again, like at a certain time, and then that's when problems come in. And they try to, you know, sleep as much as they want, you know, not have a regular wake time, uh, and then they start to not be able to sleep. And so, we once in a while have sleep disturbances, even though, uh, even for people without insomnia. But it often develops into chronic insomnia only if you engage in some compensatory uh, behavior, so trying to compensate for the sleep loss <laughs> often leads to more problems in the long one, um, and that 's called perpetuating factors, things like spending more time in bed, hoping that you can get more sleep, um, you know poor sleep hygiene, such as you, know, you start to drink more and more coffee or um, you take naps. Um, Dysfunctional beliefs about sleep, you know, when you have insomnia, often people start to be more concerned about sleep, and then they look at all kinds of information online, and sometimes information might not be accurate, and it only (laughs) increases their anxiety and frustration. People who have lack of uh, relaxation skills or uh, just kind of coping strategies in general tend to have uh, sort of a harder time, uh, you know, going to sleep, um, and eventually, if someone has long enough insomnia, they just constantly can't sleep, and they spend a lot of time in bed tossing and turning, worrying, ruminating, uh, just doing all kinds of non-sleep activities, um, it leads to what we call conditioned arousal, meaning that they keep pairing the bed with arousal, and then eventually what happens is they will notice They get really sleepy. They feel like they totally can doze off in the couch. But once they get to bed, they just all of a sudden feel really alert. And that's what we call conditioned arousal. So components of CBTI include uh, at very beginning, psychoeducation and sleep diaries. Um, So sleep diaries are very key to the treatment. So people have to fill it out from day one to the end of treatment. Um, and there are people who might question, you know, do they really do it, and you know, how do you make them do it? So I only have one patient in the past few months who didn't do it or who have trouble doing it. I think it's a lot, you know, to do with, um, you know, I spend like five to ten minutes every session, sometimes even twenty minutes, if they don't do that, or they have trouble <laughs> filling out the diary, um, to just put the numbers in an Excel sheet so that we plot the data. Um, every session, and so patients just kind of learn that this has to be done, like we are spending so much time doing it, you know, it is something important. And it is really important because the, the tailoring part of the whole treatment is based on the sleep diary data. So unlike, you know, more, you know, sleep hygiene is part of CBTI, but the key is really tailoring a sleep schedule for them, and that totally depends on the current sleep needs and current sleep pattern. And so the diary is necessary um, for, for the, um, you know, optimal, uh, you know, effectiveness of CBTI. And CBTI also includes sleep restrictions, stimulus control, sleep hygiene, relaxation, and kind of restructuring, and we'll talk a little bit more. Um, so it always begins with just explaining to patients a little bit more about uh, you know what normal sleep is, how is sleep regulated. Um, so what I often tell people is that sleep, you know we all need to sleep is a natural like human need, uh, but good sleep is learned. Um, so there are actually things that we need to do in order to promote good sleep. Um, and back in the days, I don't know about your generation, but in my generation I don't think there was like any bedtime routine when I went to bed as a child. Uh, but more recently, parents seem to learn that, you know, you need to have a bedtime routine, like 7.30. You have to eat a snack, and then you have to go to bath, and then you have to read a story, and then snacko time, and then go to bed. So we now learn that we actually have to teach our kids how to learn to calm themselves down and relax and go to sleep. And a lot of adults might, never, might have never learned it, uh, growing up, or well, they just forget that you know we we need that wind down time as well, and they expect that they work until 11 and they can fall asleep at 11:15. So some education about um, you know why behavioral treatment is, is helpful because um, it is a learned behavior. Good sleep is learned. Um, so we explain something about you know circadian rhythm, you know why we need consistent wake time, light exposure, and that kind of stuff. Um, and how sleep drive impair, or like' is needed for the sleep and so if they oversleep you know it takes away the sleep drive um, but the key part is really the arousal part helping them understand uh, what some of the things that they're doing are creating more conditioned <laughs> arousal and keeping them up even when they are sleepy here's just a, you know the sleep diary that I use um, there are many different versions of it it should take Less than three minutes to fill it out each day, and often I tell my patient, "If you spend more than three minutes filling it out, you're thinking you're overthinking it." Um, And there are patients who have a tendency to like a little bit OCD tendency, and they come back and they say, "You know, it takes me 15 minutes to fill it out," Um, and so that's very discouraged because often um, you know it could just create more alertness at night when they care about it so much. So what I tell them is just three-hour every day casually and it will still be helpful. We just need to see the patterns. Sleep restriction aims to consolidate sleep and increase sleep efficiency. So sleep restriction is necessarily um, really just cutting down on the time in bed. So the sleep window. So often how I do it is when you get the sleep diaries from them, very typical, they have low sleep efficiency. They would, you know, on average, stay in bed each and um, nine hours. And they get six hours of actual sleep time. And then I ask, so, you can only sleep six hours on average. Um, and even on the best night, you sleep six, and, six hours and 45 minutes. So why stay in bed for nine hours? And they said, I don't know why I'm tired. Um, you know, at least I'm in bed. Um, so you kind of talk them through understanding that being in bed longer doesn't help them fall back asleep and doesn't help them feel more restful. Um, and then we talk about how to really cut down on the time in bed um, to increase their sleep efficiency. There's some people who have comorbid conditions such as bipolar disorder or any other conditions who might uh, you know, be adversely impacted by <laughs> short-term sleep deprivation. Might not be a good candidate for sleep restriction, uh, but they can still receive CBTI, just you know, maybe without the sleep restriction module or like a, a sort of a tailored one for them. But oftentimes they don't actually sleep much less you know, in sleep restriction because essentially you only cut it down to how much they can actually sleep. It's sort of just you know, preventing them from sleeping in. And most people hear about regular schedule and all that, um, but really the key is more about the wake time than the bedtime, because a key part of CBT-I <coughs> is teaching people don't go to bed if you're not sleepy. So if you're not sleepy, you just don't go to bed. So maybe a regular bedtime isn't as important as a wake time, because usually people have trouble waking up in the morning, because they don't sleep well, and then they want to sleep in, but you can always wake yourself up even when you want to sleep more by an alarm. Um, So having a regular wake time is uh, often more important than a bedtime. (laughs) And in order to have a regular bedtime, um, you need to have a regular wind-down time. Uh, So that just helped create a space for people to feel sleepy. You know, you can't work until 11 and then expect you feel really sleepy and then fall asleep in 15 minutes. We all know about sleep hygiene. So these are things that we all know, and the key in this treatment is that it's important to tell patients that sleep hygiene alone is necessary but not sufficient. So a lot of people who have tried these things and come back and say, well, like, before they receive CBTI, they say, you know, I cut out coffee for two days. It makes no difference. Um, Or, like, I tried this, it doesn't work. So a lot of times it's about trying these things out consistently, um, especially if you think about the component of conditioned arousal, um, is that even if you remove all the, you know, sort of uh, sleep-interfering activities or behavior, the conditioned arousal took time to build, and it takes time to be reconditioned. Um, so often I tell people you have to do it for consistently at least two weeks, um, and sometimes doing it don't make, uh, doesn't make a significant difference difference yet until you do five things. Um, so none of these things alone would be adequate in you know, improving insomnia, but they are necessary. Um, stimulus control is um, to try to break the association between the bedroom environment and any non-sleep activities. Um, so usually the procedure is that you know if you can't fall asleep within 20 minutes, you leave the bed. Uh, that's often pretty difficult to do for a lot of patients for a lot of reasons. So one is I don't want to because I'm so tired and it's cold. Um, So so, there's a lot of problem solving around it. um, But I think the key, like every um, behavioral change intervention, is really to help them understand at a personal level how this is impacting their sleep. And that goes back to the data, goes back to the sleep diaries, um, and the sort of an individualized approach that, by plotting the data every single session and really evaluating is there a pattern of change, um, helping helping them connecting to what they do to how their sleep responds. Um, sometimes that just helps people to understand. You know, this is something I really have to do when they are able to see the evidence. Um, so no amount of talking is more convincing than having them see their own data. Um, Another misunderstanding about stimulus control that often you know, happens is that, oh, I have to wake up and do something that makes me sleepy again. Well, the thing is, you know, the negative thing about this belief is they have this mindset of trying to make themselves sleepy, trying to sleep. Um, the harder you try, the worse it is. And also, it's uh, not really the main purpose of stimulus control. Uh, The idea is that you're already sleepy. You just can't sleep. So waking up leaving the bed is not to make them sleepy. It's just to break the association between the bed and not sleeping. So when they leave the bed, they don't have to try to make themselves sleepy. They just have to do things that are pleasant, non-stimulating, and why is it a better chance? Well, in addition to breaking the association between bed and you know, any frustration and non-sleep activities, it's also that um, when you can do nothing in bed, you lie down, your mind, you, know, you just have nothing to occupy yourself. There's just a greater chance that you're going to ruminate about what happened today or what's going to happen tomorrow or anything else. But when you get out of bed, you can read a book. You can do something that actually get your mind off. Um, so that's a you know benefit of uh, reducing you know sort of constant worry or rumination about things that only keep them awake. And relaxation often just let me check the time. Uh, relaxation often is uh, sort of consider. Uh, Well, actually, sleep restrictions, stimulus control and tailoring the sleep schedule are usually the most effective parts of the treatment. Uh, Relaxation tends to work for some people, not really as helpful for others. Um, Often it's more helpful for people who have a lot of (coughs) trouble relaxing, just a lot of high anxiety or um, just having trouble winding down. So we practice these in sessions and there are a bunch of relaxation apps people can use as well. Um, in terms of anxiety, sometimes uh, there are a lot of behavioral strategies to reduce, them, you know, especially bedtime anxiety, such as you know set up worry times. If you tend to worry, maybe schedule a time 5 p.m. and you know write a list and worry the hack out of it, five to six, <laughs> and, and just don't think about it, uh, you know, when you're in bed, oh, or when you're in bed when you think about it, write it down and you know tell yourself that I can worry about it tomorrow at five. Um, sometimes it helps. Um, and writing down worries sometimes help, too. So practicing mindfulness helps as well um, for some people, especially when they feel like, you know, what if in the first 20 minutes I haven't, you know, I don't have to leave the bed yet, what should I do? Um, so pay attention to the breathing or just the senses. Uh, sometimes just help them get back to sleep because it prevent them from going off and think about all kinds of things. Destruction helps if it works. Um, so, you know, it's not recommended for people with anxiety disorders, <laughs> usually. Um, but if it works, it works. Um, so, cognitive kind of restructuring. So, a part of the maintenance, the perpetuating factor for insomnia, is um, the thinking part. And, you know, some of the beliefs about sleep that just tend to create more frustration, more feeling, more annoyed. Um, And these are common beliefs that people have. I need eight hours of sleep each night. So the most recent consensus recommendation is that we need seven to nine hours of sleep. So if you're seven hours, you're good. As good as nine. In fact, if you sleep 10, you actually have increased risk for, um, you know, disease, uh, future development of diseases. Um, So it's helpful to correct people thinking, you know, you really need eight hours every single night. It's not true, in fact, I only need seven and 45 minutes. I never <laughs> sleep eight hours, so. Um, and the other common belief is that my next day is gonna be ruined if I don't sleep. That's very common. And you, know, you can tell people, explain to people, well, usually how you feel the next day is um, influenced by a number of factors. You know, like what you're doing, if you're doing something really boring, you're gonna be sleepy anyway. Uh, if you're doing something really exciting, you know, you, you might just feel as alert. Or you know, if you're doing something you enjoyed, you might be as alert. Um, so that kind of helps people understand a little bit more. But again, talking usually isn't as helpful as seeing the data themselves. Um, so sometimes I uh, have people track. Um, you know, just rate your alertness or your, you think how well you do your job the next day on a scale of 1 to 10 uh, with the sleep diaries. And then we really see if there's a correlation between um, how you feel the next day and how you sleep the previous night. In fact, for the most part, it, it really isn't correlated very strongly. Uh, there are a lot of things that impact how we feel in the day, our mood, our activity level, what we're doing, light exposure. Um, So often people, when they're able to see their own data, and they recognize, oh, you're right, actually, you know, I felt this (coughs) fine. So I won't be able to enjoy my life if I don't sleep well. So this is another thing that, you know, sometimes in the talking, people would kind of review these sort of thoughts in the back of their mind that, um, you know, kind of feel the frustration of not being able to sleep, and these are things that we would address. Um, this one is tough, I right? will have more pain if I don't sleep enough. So for people who have comorbid, um, especially chronic pain and insomnia, um, what well, the good news is that is there's a lot of research shown that it's, it's pretty effective even for people with comorbid medical conditions including chronic pain. Uh, but clinically it is hard because they do have more pain if they don't sleep well. Um, And often there's trouble, like you know, I'm just feeling so much pain. I had to lie in bed. Um, So there is a little more difficult to deal with. But um, I think a lot of uh, you know, you know, understanding that um, if you're able to sleep well in the long run, it has you know beneficial effect on your pain as well. In fact, there are some studies that I did with my in in my postdoc fellowship focusing on treating insomnia and comorbid chronic pain, there's a delay effect of CBTI on chronic pain. So it has sort of not so significant effect at at post-treatment on uh, reducing chronic pain. So so it definitely is effective in reducing sleep problems or insomnia at post-treatment for people with chronic pain. But it actually has a delay effect on the reduction of chronic pain at follow-up. So there's some preliminary evidence showing that having adequate sleep, good sleep, um, actually sort of reduce pain sensitivity over time. So there's something to sell to your patients as well. And often when we work on these thoughts, we are talking about is it true or false, and sometimes there are thoughts that could be true, um, but it's just a matter of is it helping you, Uh, having this thought in your mind, or can there be more adaptive thoughts that reduce your (coughs) insomnia. So CBDI has been shown to be pretty uh, effective for comorbid insomnia as well. Um, In a meta-analysis looking at uh, comorbid insomnia with psychiatric conditions, they did find uh, medium to large effects on insomnia sometimes. Uh, They do also find small to medium effects on the comorbid conditions. So the nice thing is sometimes when we improve sleep, we actually see a lot of improvements in other areas as well. Um, and this is sort of still under a lot of research, you know, why that's the case and, you know, what's the mechanisms. Uh, but it seems to have a pretty positive effect on the comorbid conditions as well. Um, yeah, same with medical illnesses as well. Um, and um, yeah, so 36% of people achieve uh, full remission following CBTI uh, compared to only 17% in the control condition. And again, sleep hygiene alone is often used as a control condition in CBTI uh, trials. Um, So it's considered an inactive um, treatment. So a little bit more about um, CBTI and other comorbid conditions. Um, So there are a lot more studies recently on depression. Um, In fact, a more recent trial and published, I think just in 2018, so they looked at um, you know people with uh, both insomnia and depression, and they have three conditions, CBTI, CBT for depression, and control. And what they found is that in the um, uh, CBTI and the CBT for depression group, they have equivalent improvement in depression uh, compared to control. And the CBTI group has superior improvements in sleep. So in some way, just improving people 's sleep seems to alleviate the depression as much as if we just do a CBT focus on depression and there you know many potential mechanisms that are be- being tested, uh, but I think you know partially um, if you think about sleep you know if you 're sleep deprived or you don 't sleep well, it basically just kind of uh, mm-hmm decrease your general ability to cope and self-regulation so you're less capable able, uh, capable of um, using your coping skills. Um, the other area is obesity. That's actually my research areas. Um, and there's some research showing that, um, well, there's a lot of research showing that sleep is linked to obesity. If you don't sleep well, you tend to have a greater likelihood of being obese in the future. Um, there are some more studies showing that it might not be insomnia-specific, but more to do with uh, sleep duration and also sleep timing. And then chronic pain is another thing I just mentioned. There's some experimental evidence showing that uh, sleep deprivation can increase pain sensitivity. So there are more trials now trying to look at, can we improve sleep to improve chronic pain? And so how to sell CBTI. So I. Got a list of things that you can tell your patients. Um, So tell them, it works with 70 to 80% of people. Um, So they might say, well, maybe I'm the 20%. Um, But you can say, "You know, this is the first line treatment. So meaning that if you haven't got it, it's your best bet. You need to try it first. Um, And then the benefits maintain even after treatment. And the nice thing is it might even get better over time. And it gets back the, to the condition arousal. You know, when they remove all of the things that they're doing that are preventing them to sleep well, they improve significantly. But if they continue doing that, it's you know the condition arousal really slowly get removed, and they get a much you know even bigger effects at follow up. So that's a very nice thing to tell your patients: the effects maintain even after you stop it. And I explain to them it's not just sleep hygiene. A lot of patients have the sort of misconception that, oh, it's just sleep hygiene, I've done all of that, it doesn't work. Um, so explain to them it's way more than that. It's very individualized, um, and it's really, uh, you know, individualized for you particularly. It's not just some generic um, sleep hygiene. Um, it also works for people who have chronic pain or other medical and psychiatric illnesses. It's very important because I do have a lot of patients who you know, well, they're willing to come in to see me, but they would say, you know, I don't know if I can do this. I have chronic pain. You know, if I don't do this, I'm going to have a lot of pain. Um, so it's helpful for you to explain to patients. It's been shown to be, asked, you know, quite effective, even for people who have these uh, comorbid conditions and illnesses. And the the plus size is also sometimes it could even improve your comorbid conditions. <laughs> And then I would like to take a few minutes to sort of uh, explain how you can make a referral for CBTI. Uh, so my colleagues uh, put together a few slides um, you know, for us to introduce our psychological services uh, in the Department of Psychiatry. So a little explanation. So I do a lot of insomnia cases, and the sleep medicine clinic, uh, you know, focus on sleep apnea and other sleep disorders. And we are sort of somewhat, lo- you know, located in two different uh, <coughs> Uh, clinics. Although I am in the sleep medicine clinic like half day, uh, a week or so. Uh, but typically, if you have a patient, you're pretty clear that it's a lot about insomnia. You know, not being able to fall back asleep. Um, you know, not much risk for sleep apnea. You know, no snoring and, and all that. You might just you can directly just refer to me under psychiatry. If you have questions about oh he might have sleep apnea or might be insomnia, you can refer to the sleep medicine. Clinic. So, under psychiatry, we have three uh, sort of categories of services general psychiatry, neuropsychology, and clinical psychology. And the psychological services are under, you know, the psych- clinical psychology services, and we have three branches. Just a little introduction about the anxiety disorder services, because my colleague is right here, so i got to talk about this. Um, so, the anxiety disorder service. It's led by Dr. Brady, uh, and there are services provided by psychologists, social workers, postdocs, and interns. Um, and they provide short-term, time-limited, evidence-based interventions for pretty much all kinds of anxiety disorders, um, com- common uh, presenting on concerns of things like GAD, panic disorders, you know, social anxieties, specific phobia, and all these things that you see, PTSD, um, or health anxiety. And in order to make a referral, I don't know if everybody knows it, just to make sure everybody knows how to make a referral in EDH. Um, so you go to, I believe it's the Med and Order tab, and then you search, you, you kind of type in psychiatry, or like referral, and then you uh, search for psychiatry and identify anxiety disorder service uh, in the My Question or Request is uh, box. And ideally, if you could provide some preliminary information about the patients, it uh, would be helpful uh, for, for us to triage them and schedule them with the right provider. Um, and they need to have a primary or substantial secondary anxiety disorder to receive treatment. Um, yeah, and they, you know, we can also do consultation and assessments. The behavioral medicine section is led by, the, uh, by Dr. Rottenberg, um, and we're also providing short-term and time limited services, um, especially for patients who struggle to adjust their to medical diagnosis and illness, and struggling to make behavioral changes to support their overall health and medical illness. And I'm under the behavioral medicine and specialize um, in behavioral sleep. And we have a specialization in chronic pain as well. Right now, we actually, uh, well, again, so search for psychiatry and ch- uh, identify B service in the My Question, and we press. Uh, box um, and provide some preliminary information if you can. Um, especially if you're looking for someone for CBTI, just write CBTI and then people would know to schedule it with me. Um, right now, we don't have staff in the mood disorder session. So, all right, that's all I have.
0: Very much. As I was saying in the beginning, I've already referred patients and had really good success. So I'm a believer and a supporter, and I'm I'm a little worried that now everybody else knows. (laughs) A long way list. Let's take some questions. Uh, Can you talk about
1: cost and coverage? The
0: the big obstacle for us in primary care,
1: in addition to I don't have time, give me a pill, Mm all those, is. People feel sort of overwhelmed by. So, what, what's your experience so far with the agent's insurance, other mm-hmm. other insurances about the coverage for this? Yeah, so, um, well, I, I think it's covered uh, by insurance. I think a lot of times it's the deductible that might be discouraging for, for some patients, especially at the beginning of the year. Um, so, there are options that I forgot to put some slides in. I don't know if I can do it. So, there are some like sort of electronic. Uh, versions apps and stuff um, so I know a lot of people know the CBTI coach app that's developed by the VA uh, but that one is not developed for use uh, by the patient alone that's meant to be a clinician um, you know guided uh, app uh, but there is one called shut Eye, developed uh, in Harvard and they're pretty well um, uh you know, pretty well validated. Um, But the thing is, I haven't figured out, so they're not free. So they cost something, and I haven't figured out, like, how to get insurance to bill, like, to pay for for the subscription. So I think there's just a, a layer of sort of figuring out that. I mean, I haven't really, well, I guess, you know, I haven't really had patients telling me that they can't come because they can't, Afforded. I think most patients, you know, are covered by the insurance for CBTI because it's uh, evidence-based treatment. Uh, but there might be cases that they cancel because they have a deductible. Um, I don't really personally know how much I charge my patients.
0: <laughs> so I just wanted to uh, make it clear that actually our uh, EAP psychologists are trained in CBTI, and that is free for uh, our employees and their families to... Uh, in the same house, so it's free for our employees. Um, also, um, the work well on our Manage Well worksite has a uh, CBTI for, ins- for insomnia, that was developed actually by the prior director of behavioral medicine and Jane Bucky so. And, and it's available to everyone uh, at no cost. Uh, uh, and if you go to the Manage Well site, uh, from Live Well, Work Well, you'll be able to get the link to that um, to that program, which also, by the way, has a uh, treatment for mood disorders, anxiety, uh, and conflict at work.
1: Thanks for the information. Yeah.
0: Do you know what your wait times are?
1: <laughs> <Some> question. <laughs> um, I don't really know, but um, yeah, I can it's hard for me to answer. I think Six to eight weeks. Okay, yeah, so in the sleep medicine clinic, I think my wait time is six to eight weeks. In the psychiatry, it's hard for me to tell. I think sometimes I have more sort of reason, uh, sort of openings, but it's just that, you know, I have set days, and some days I'm not there, and, you know, whether patients can make it at a certain time, if they can, then it have to kind of schedule out, you know, a, a couple months or so. And
0: are you or anybody teaching this to, like, the population in general? Because it feels like this is something we should all learn in high school. <laughs> Good I actually
1: think most CBT's should be learned in high school. <laughs> you know, how to recollect your emotions and all that. Um, well, I, I think they are. So in the Society of Behavioral State Medicine, uh, we do provide sort of some regular workshops. Um, but it's mostly for providers who want to learn how to deliver CBTI. Um, I think for, for just people, general people who need to have better sleep. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, sort of general education might be helpful just especially for preventing any insomnia, but often for people who have chronic insomnia for a while, it does take them to work with a, a specialist individually to, to really treat the insomnia. Uh, but yeah, I, I do agree with you that I think we should all have an you know, intro class in high school.
0: Um, how about teaching it to primary care bound residents
1: so that practicing physicians can have it as a skill set? Yeah, that's a great idea. I'm going to talk to Alan Green about it <laughs> and maybe I can use some of my time, you know, pay for by teaching and I'm happy to. I, you know, I think there are courses, uh, maybe not, I'm not aware of any particular courses here, but um, or directed to primary care, um, I think the challenge is that, again, so the more generic introduction like today can be done to a mass of people. But if you really want to train someone to be able to be a specialist in CBTI. It takes a little bit more than, you know, sort of this presentation. It takes, uh, in fact, to be a good CBTI provider, often you need to be a good CBT provider. So I got training, a lot of training in CBT before I get CBTI training. So um, a lot of things are good for, you know, knowledge, uh, but to really do it with someone with chronic insomnia, it takes a lot of clinical skills to to really get people to do things. I think that's, a, the, the, that's what I'm paid for. <laughs> Pay to do you know, that's why I have a job. It's like, it, it's not easy for any simple behavioral change. In fact, I hope to go to the gym like three times a week since like maybe October and there's a gym right here and it's like, oh, I'm going to go to the gym three times a week and it hasn't happened yet (laughs) for me. So any behavioral change is difficult and it does take a lot of training to work individually with someone um, if they have chronic insomnia. But yes, I agree, for more like, you know, prevention and just kind of education, it's helpful (coughs) to have these... um, Presentations to primary care clinics.
0: And Dr. Chan,
1: I'll also just point out it's you know the the underpinnings of behavioral therapy are not
0: extremely complicated, but it takes an enormous amount of time and people develop part of the problem with the insomnia in other behavioral issues is that people develop extremely ingrained um, behaviors that are very, very, very difficult to challenge. And it's incredibly time intensive, yeah. And that's why medication ends up, unfortunately, being the default um, because yeah. a primary care
1: person we don't have time. Yeah. A primary care person isn't going to have the amount of time. Yep. To to actually deliver the whole thing.
0: Deliver. Yeah. How long is the wind down time on average for most people? That.
1: <laughs> Yeah, it varies. Usually I ask people to start with um, two hours, um, especially with people with chronic insomnia. They just need a little longer. Uh, for me, I say one hour. So I think it's roughly, you know, I think an hour is probably, I mean, there's no solid like evidence comparing one hour, two hours and all that. But I think an hour is roughly, you know, the minimum that you have to sort of cut off from all the stimulation and kind of prep for um, going to sleep.
0: And in terms of the sleep restriction, if you
1: have somebody who's three hours and then they wake up from 1 a.m., do you just move those three hours somewhere else, or how do you do that
0: without yeah. your <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, So sleep restriction often, well, first so of all, there's a rule that we don't, we never restrict it uh, to below five hours, just so for sort of safety. Um, and so sleep restriction is more about the time window, the sleep window. Um, how much they can sleep, we can control really directly. Um, so we just want to limit how much time you stay, stay in bed. Um, so if you know, sometimes people do occasionally. You know, if we limit, usually I go a little bit slowly. It depends on the patients. I think you know, clinically, it's a clinical judgment. You know, you want to reduce it ideally to match their current sleep ability. Let's say they sleep six hours and they lie in bed for nine, you want to reduce it to six hours. But some people are going to freak out. So you sort of kind of have to find a, a, a medium that, you know, maybe seven hours to start. Um, so some people do, well, most people don't significantly decrease their actual sleep time in sleep uh, restriction. But some people do, and they might even just sleep three four hours. Um, so for those without bipolar disorder or any other sort of concerning conditions, it's not a big deal, because it's not meant to be forever. You know, it's meant to be done just briefly, and you closely monitor them you know, for changes in their sleep patterns. Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't know if that addressed your question, but you know, we can't control how much they actually sleep, but we're just cutting down the sleep window. And occasionally
0: we meet people who sort of
1: self-restrict, and they say, well, I get up at 3 a.m., mm-hmm. and I'm really happy with that.
0: Uh, and then I go about my day, and I feel great. And it may be peculiar, but
1: they've had yeah. five hours of sleep. Yeah. Well, first of all, it depends on um, you know whether they actually have insomnia. Insomnia has to be, you know, defined and diagnosed by a subjective complaint of sleep. If they are fine, they might not even be in my clinic. Uh, but it does, you know, relate to you know there is a recommended range of, you know, a good amount of sleep. Um, and if there are patients who tend to, um, you know, sleep much less than what they should be, and if they happen to be in my clinic, we will try to expand, you know, increase sleep efficiency first and expand the sleep window to make it above seven hours. And it takes a lot, you know, helping them understand why this is important. I know you don't feel sleepy, but most people have trouble if they sleep uh, less than, like, six hours. They get fat and they... You know, have all these problems. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of, you know, give them the rationale why. You know, this is important um, to, you know, s- sleep a uh, roughly seven hours at least. Yeah. Just at the end of the hour, I want to thank both of you and Dr. Jeff for bringing us clearly a topic of relevance to our, our audience. Yeah.